com website, which is where I have my history blog. So we just posted over the weekend a post about Notre Dame and the founding fathers, which we're now going to continue that discussion tonight. And because the, the field is so rich and there's so much fertile information to talk about, I'm probably going to be posting on this next week. So if, uh, if sure. you guys want, we might even be able to continue the conversation next sure, week. Sure, sure. We're all for it. Absolutely. So where shall we start here on 94.5? Yeah, what, what year does it start? What year would, are you going to start? Okay, so that's a good question. And Notre Dame, and I apologize for my pronunciation. That's fine. Was, it was originally, they laid the first cornerstone for construction. And just imagine, and I'm going to give some examples of how old it is. They, they, it's 800, over 850 years old. And the cornerstone, and some of these names, again, are in French, so I'll try not to pronounce them. But uh, just to give you some idea of how old we're talking, uh, was Louis the Seventh was the king of France at the time. Sure. And let's see, the there was a pope who also was involved in laying the, the stones for, uh, you know, the cornerstones when you're building a, a big building. But it yep. took about 100 years to build it. And yep. I'm encouraging folks, go to statutesandstories.com. And I always have to point out on the radio show that uh, statutesandstories.com is a history website. And it's being used now by teachers and professors and students of all ages to learn American history. But it's a non-political website, meaning today's politics, but it's very political, talking about the history of the time. So when we talk about Notre Dame, we're going to get to hear and uh, discuss and delve into the details of, of some very interesting American and French history. And this history relates to the French Revolution, that relates to the American Revolution, the American-French alliance. But now to go back to uh, Notre Dame and the, the building of the building, so that you can read a little bit about this on statutesandstories.com. And I wanted to give you the facts with regard to how old it is. And uh, I've also, what I think, uh, so to put things in comparison, because when you're talking about a building that's 850 years old, you know, American history, let's give some comparisons. Jamestown was built, or was the first American permanent settlement, is only 412 years old. Jamestown, if I'm not mistaken, was 1607 when Jamestown was founded in Virginia. Yep. The U.S., how old is the United States? And if you measure the age of the United States... 240 only. Right, 240 and change, yes. right, if you go from the Declaration of Independence. So compared to Notre Dame, America is, uh, you know, is, is uh, it's a blip on the scale because it's so old. Here's some more comparisons. That uh, Notre Dame was already 329 years old when Christopher Columbus discovered the New World, and I put discovered in quotes, in 1492. So it is an old structure. <clears throat> and to uh, give you some more details... As I said, King Louis the Seventh was the king who laid the cornerstone, as was uh, Pope Alexander the Third. And have either of you guys had a chance to ever go to Paris and to see Notre Dame? Yep. Only Ed. I've all, I've been to Paris, but I didn't go to Notre Dame. Paris, Texas, too. I've been to both. I stayed on the coast. I never went. I went never went north to go to Paris. He was well, uh, checking out the babes. I've never been to Paris. I just through the airport. But uh, we're, we're, and here we're going to combine together some of the facts that we've learned on other nights with uh, some of the cast of uh, folks who call in from time to time. But David Wells Roth, who is the author, uh, yep. the author, the, the artist, who's a friend of the show, was nice enough to allow me to put links to, and we're going to be adding more links to his website. And he lived, if you remember, from a couple of weeks ago. He lived yep. in Paris yep. and lived in France for, I want to say, about 15 years. He lived in Europe. Mm -hmm. So, uh, of course, when you're an artist and you're in France, 
what are you going to make pictures if you're drawing and you're painting? So he's got several beautiful pictures of Notre Dame. So if you go to statutesandstories.com or if you go to davidwellsroth.com, you can see some of his artwork that we'll be talking about. Uh, he's got Notre Dame and the sun setting. He's got Notre Dame in the, in the evening and then in the sunrise. And he's also selling prints of Notre Dame for very reasonable fees. You can get it framed or you can get it without the frame. And I, he may even be donating some of the proceeds to, uh, you know, to, to can talk about the money that they've raised so far. But uh, so I'm inviting people to listen to us on the radio and to, to go to statutesandstories.com, the website. Wow, fantastic! So yeah. when when was it? Uh, when was the the first cornerstone laid? But I remember the, here uh, the word ten, the number ten eighty six. Is that correct? Is that or was that when it was finished? Sixty three is the number I've come up with. What's that? When the cornerstone, and again, it took about a hundred years because it's such an elaborate right. with the the arches and people. And I'm not a an expert in in. Um, architecture, but the, the, the flying buttresses, right. which provide support, and the rib vault construction, what does that mean? You could have a much higher ceiling, and you could let in more light by having the, the buttresses outside the building as opposed to structural support along the wall itself. So you had these, uh, the idea was to get height, to get light, to get color, and I'm also told, since we're talking about how old Notre Dame is, that there had been a church on that site all the way back to the 6th century. So it is a building sure. that has quite a lot of history, and, and People may have heard in the news that the, the roof, which is where the, the fire was, uh, 1,300 pretty solid oak pieces of wood. So for them to cut down that wood and then to lay out, you can understand, it took 100 years to, to, to complete the first phase of construction. And then right. later over time, the building was expanded and additional work was done. And we'll talk about the French Revolution and what happened during the French Revolution. But the building itself, again, I haven't been there, but it is phenomenal. And if you look at the, the artwork by David, you get a, a thin slice of, of how phenomenal it is. And I think that leads to what we're going to talk about tonight, which is it occurred to me because of the timing of the, the fire and uh, the important place of Paris in French history and really in American history to try to find out what Americans, when I talk about Americans, since statutesandstories.com deals with the founding generation and early American history, which founding fathers went there? What did they think? So that's what this post is all about, and that's what next week's post will also be about. And amazingly, I've been able to demonstrate that over 30, so several dozen um, American leading names that you're going to recognize as we go through this list tonight, spent time in France, and a lot of these are not surprises, because we're talking about... Yeah, Jefferson and Franklin come to mind right away. Absolutely. Franklin, we'll talk about John Adams, we'll talk about Jefferson, and some other names that we've become familiar with. In fact, let me give you a little teaser. Two weeks ago, and I also want to compliment the, 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 the host who filled in last week, because that was a, a very interesting yep. and I think very worthwhile uh, lecture that you had, or discussion of stories last week. But if you go back two weeks, we were discussing Robert Livingston and Charles Livingston, and we were talking about Jackson and the 1830s. So we're going to get some Livingstons coming into the picture. We're going to get some Supreme Court justices coming into the picture, but it's, it's a really, it's a cast of, uh, of uh, uh, phenomenal names and historic names who, at one time or another, traveled to Paris. And uh, so we're going to go through a list of names. And we're also going to talk about some of the, the stories that connect to American history and French history. So let me delve in there. And uh, I think it was a learning experience for me because I'm not Catholic. But one of the reasons why they're there is for diplomatic reasons. Some of them came. And most of the names I'm going to be reading tonight were there for reasons of negotiating treaties. And if we have time, we can talk about the a tremendous list of treaties, almost, uh, and I, I don't know how to make the comparison, but uh, I, I was able 
able to determine that easily you've got in the neighborhood of uh, 40 or more treaties uh, that were negotiated at one time or another having to do with Paris. So we can go through some of those treaties. But uh, in addition to the usual suspects, and we mentioned some of them already, we also determined that there were famous Americans who traveled there on business. We had famous Americans who went there to get educated. And maybe that's where I want to start tonight. And that has to do with famous Catholic Americans and uh, Unfortunately, uh, the name has been thrown around that the forgotten patriot is Charles Carroll. So Charles Carroll was the only Catholic to sign the Declaration of Independence, and he comes from a very prominent Catholic family in Maryland. And a cousin, Daniel Carroll from Maryland, uh, was a signer of the Constitution, and also Thomas Fitzsimmons was a Catholic from Pennsylvania who was a signer of the Constitution. So lo and behold, as it turns out, the Jesuit college, and I'm probably not going to be able to pronounce it correctly, but St. Omer, O-M-E-R, was a location where a lot of American, very wealthy Catholics would travel to get educated in their in their early teens, and that's exactly what happened with Charles Carroll. So this is, again, the forgotten patriot or forgotten founder uh, in his youth traveled to Paris. Now, I don't I wasn't able to find documentation. I'm sure it probably exists in one form or another. So I couldn't doc find documentation that he actually went into Notre Dame. But if he was studying at a Jesuit school in Paris, I mean, right. you guys tell me the likelihood, you know. Of going to Sunday Mass was like. Yeah, or something. Check it out. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So there, there's almost no question that when I say they studied in Paris at a Jesuit college, they probably were going into Notre Dame on a, on a regular basis. So that, that's quite interesting. The Carroll family and the Carrolls, at least Charles Carroll, was at the, at the time of the revolution, understood to be the wealthiest American. And we can talk about some of his history if we have a chance. Uh, so that's a very important family. In fact, one of Charles Carroll's cousins, and I didn't know this, John Carroll, also studied in his youth in Paris and became the first American archbishop. And then later, and remember, they had to travel to Paris, and that university that I mentioned, St. Omer, was established in Paris as a location for English Catholics to learn about Catholicism. So eventually, John Carroll, who becomes an archbishop, realizes that we need to have a Catholic university in America. So guess what? John Carroll winds up founding, you want to take the guess at what the university was? The Georgetown. 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 So John Carroll, who was the cousin of Charles Carroll, who signed the Declaration of Independence, founded Georgetown University so that American Catholics wouldn't have to travel to Paris in order to get a good Jesuit education. Now, um, it's it's kind of a change of subject, but I need I just need to know if you have any information about this. Uh, as I've read the Federalist Papers, there were uh, several statements uh, impartial or maybe partial towards Catholics in the Federalist Papers. Was there any type of uh, gripe in between Protestants and Catholics in the New World? For it to have, it was pr pretty profound for it to have shown up in the Federalist Papers on several times. They called them the Papists. 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 They had a problem with them. Yep. So I'm surprised that there were Catholics. I'm happy to know that there were Catholics who signed the Constitution. One. Oh, well, one. Okay. Yep. And the, independ and the uh, Declaration of Independence as well. Signed the Declaration, two who were founders and framed the Constitution. But Maryland, in particular, was a Catholic. A lot right. of Catholics lived in Maryland. But to your point, and I, I don't, I can't give you sites to the Federalist Papers, Manny. But at the time of the Revolution, the Catholics were certainly discriminated against. In fact, they couldn't run for office. They could not be elected because it was primarily a Protestant country. And then uh, once the states became states after 1783, you now have, for the first time, were allowing Catholics in Maryland to run for office. And uh, that was an important point when, um, you know, apparently under British control, uh, they were not very sympathetic to allowing Catholics. And you can understand why, because the, you know, England was fighting France, and one's primarily 
Anglican slash Protestant, one is primarily Catholic. Uh, but to your point, Manny, the, the Catholics did suffer a lot of discrimination in the, yes. on another yeah. evening, because I'm going to post about it in the next couple yeah, months. Yeah, but the Constitution... Alexander Hamilton, I always try to bring him into our conversations, yeah. was a leading proponent in New York of removing a lot of the restrictions on Catholics to allow a Catholic to yeah. be on the Board of Trustees, for example, of Columbia University, which had been King's College. And he also wanted to allow Catholics to run for office. So uh, I think it's a very important question, and maybe we can continue that. At the, for yeah, a and you know, the Constitution specifically says that there shall be no religious test for office. And so that was so that you couldn't uh, require people to be Protestant or Catholic or a type of denomination of Protestant. Uh, but in England, Catholic emancipation, that is letting Catholics run for office, didn't happen until about 1830. Wow. So it took a, a while, time. yeah. So America was well ahead of its time. Yep. Wow, 1830, that's... that's. Yeah, they, were, you, they weren't allowed to run for office or go to make, become members of Parliament, I'm pretty sure. Yep. Wow, that... that... Because I've, I've been to London, I've been to their churches, yeah, and yeah. they've got some pretty a, profound Catholic a, churches. Well, now they do. But, Adam, you know, uh, both Manny and I went to Catholic high, uh, Jesuit high schools. So what you can do is you he, can Adam was not impressed. Oh, no, just to let you know who you're talking to. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm very impressed. And I'm <laughs> going to need your expertise on Catholic rituals because some of Well, don't are... be impressed with my side of the uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> Jesuit education. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm not one to be, uh, you know, praising the, uh, the Jesuits. But anyway, continue. What were the? Um, what about the treaties? You wanted to point out some of the treaties. What treaties do you find uh, really poignant in, in our history? That we're, we're going to get into lots of treaties, but, but before we do, I want to give more of the names so sure. we know the cast that we're going to be talking about. Okay. And let me dovetail a little bit with the, the Jesuit background that some of you guys have. And the observation is that what I was able to find and what, what the statutes and stories do, it looks at the primary sources. So I looked at the letters of Jefferson and of Franklin writing back and forth. And, of course, because I'm not a trained historian, I'm a lawyer, I also like to mention on every radio broadcast some of the secondary sources or books that I've referred to. So lo and behold, one of the books we're going to be using today is William Howard Adams, who's a historian. He passed away in his 90s. The name of the book is The Paris Years of Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. Also, he wrote about Governor Morris and an independent life. And we'll talk about Governor Morris. And David McCullough, who is another famous American historian, wrote about Americans in Paris. But unfortunately, Americans in Paris from David McCullough is starting in the 1830s. So I like to focus at the earlier time periods. So we'll be going through some of their materials. And I also wanted to point out that in addition to the Catholic families that I mentioned who are getting an education in Paris, you also have other groups that all characterize now. So you have some people who are traveling to Paris on business, then you had some who are traveling to paint. For example, Thomas Paine who was the author of Common Sense, was there to learn and to be involved in revolution. John Trumbull, the American painter, was there to paint. And interestingly, Aaron Burr traveled to Paris to escape and to get away. So if we have time, we can talk about Aaron Burr and the time he spent fathering children in Paris during his uh, exile, if you will. Yeah, that's, why don't we just concentrate on that all the way to the end of the show? No, no. Build up our audience here. Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr. He was, so he was a womanizer. I mean, I've seen portraits of him. He doesn't seem like to be a very handsome guy. But what, um, you know, what was it about him that made him so? First, I imagine I'm assuming he was a socialite for him to mingle. And how many f kids did he father? 
So he had two children with different mothers that he adopted when he was in Paris. And we'll, we'll have, if we have time, we can talk about Aaron Burr. But my, my point was just to observe that there were different reasons that people were coming to Paris. And almost without exception, you know, they fell in love with the city. So take a guess how long Benjamin Franklin winds up living in Paris. A long time. The rest of his life. No, no. <laughs> he was there for, he spent a lot of time there. See, he spent quite a deal of time. So let, let's start off with Benjamin Franklin. So Franklin is assigned by the Continental Congress. This is in 1776, as the Revolutionary War is breaking out, yep. to try to get assistance from France. And he'd actually been in Paris before, in the 1760s, in 1767, because I found a letter that he writes to a family member back home. In fact, the letter he writes describes how Louis the I'm sorry, Louis the... Six, Louis the 14th, 15th, Louis the 16th's 16, mother yeah. passed away in 1767. So there was a service that was held, and they had lights illuminating art. And I'm not sure from the letter what was being illuminated, but he describes it as a illumination of figures. And uh, so just to show that Franklin was there starting in the 1760 time frame. And, um, you know, at all, almost, I won't say all, but in many important moments in French history, for example, the passing of the, you know, the mother of the, the king, so Louis the 16th mother when she passed away, uh, or we'll talk about later if we have time or next week, Napoleon, when Napoleon crowns himself emperor of France, where do you think he does it? In Notre Dame. Right. In Notre Dame. So uh, let's start again with Franklin. So Franklin in 1767 travels there, and then he, 10 years later, is asked by the Continental Congress because of his, and he was a, he was a celebrity for many, for many reasons. And he was fluent, right? He was fluent in French? Well, he could get along, yeah. He did speak French. I wouldn't call him fluent. And right. I want to say Hamilton was quite fluent in French. Right. Jefferson, uh, not as not as fluent. But uh, you know, he did travel, if we're, if we're talking about yeah. Franklin, many times to Paris. Yeah. So most importantly, he's there in 1776. And then he is joined as the war, and an important date has to do with Saratoga. So we win the Battle of Saratoga, and that's when in 1778 the French right. are willing to Louis realizes, King Louis the Sixteenth that uh, the Americans may actually pull this off because we get our first major victory. So Franklin is joined in the 1778 time frame by a couple other negotiators. So this is when Adams comes to Paris, and he's also joined by and I'm horrible pronouncing some of these names, but Arthur Lee and Silius Dean. And they are successful in negotiating in 1778 America's two first treaties. So there's the Treaty of Alliance with France and then the Treaty of Commerce with France. So we've become commercial and military you know, allies, and that's in 1778. And you know that team stays there for some time, and Adams travels to try to negotiate some other alliances with, with Holland and some other countries. So that, that's an important group that's there in the 1776 to 1778 time frame. Now, let me tell you some other groups if we talk about treaties. So we just gave you uh, two treaties, but the 1783, what's the next very important treaty? And it has Paris in the name. Treaty of Paris. 1783. Treaty of Paris. You're saying that Franklin was there from 76 to 83? So Franklin was there in 1776, and he stays there basically for a decade. Right. And wait till I tell you some stories about Franklin in Paris. So 1783, and he may go back and forth from time to time, but he's basically there for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And the Treaty of Paris was Franklin, John Adams, John Jay, Henry Lawrence, and again, whenever I get a chance to mention a Hamilton connection, Henry Lawrence, some of you may remember, is the father of John Lawrence. John Lawrence is very good friends with 
Alexander Hamilton. So that team is successful in getting a, a very favorable treaty, the Treaty of Paris from 1783, where the British basically uh, give us everything we're asking for at the end of the Revolutionary War. And as I like to say on Statutes and Stories, we not only put primary sources, but we try to put pictures. So we have a picture, which is a very famous picture from the Treaty of 1783, and it shows that team that I just mentioned, Franklin and Adams and John Jay, Henry Lawrence, um, but it does not show, and it was painted by Benjamin West, a very famous British painter, because the British negotiating team didn't want to pose. Right. So if you go to the website or just Google it, then you can see half of a picture. But that's the very famous Treaty of 1783. And the name of the picture is the American Commissioners of the Preliminary Peace Agreement with Great Britain by Benjamin West. So you can see David Wells Roth's art. You can see uh, you know, this art by uh, Benjamin West. So that's the second major negotiations that are taking place in Paris. So 1778 was our first treaty with France. 1783 is our treaty with Britain. So what other groups of negotiators travel through Paris? And without talking about all of them yet, uh, when does Jefferson come to Paris? And the quick answer is that the Jefferson replaces Franklin. So when does Jefferson come? And Jefferson comes in 1784, and he stays for five years. Jefferson's there from 1784 until 1789. When he returns, he becomes Secretary of State for George Washington. So let me give you some vignettes about what happens with, uh, with Franklin. So what is Franklin, among other things, famous for inventing? Oh, not electric, uh, all sorts of stuff. All sorts of stuff. So here's an example. The first lightning rod that okay. gets installed in Paris is Benjamin Franklin installs a lightning rod at the house or the chateau of the famous, and, and I won't even try to pronounce the names, but of the, the, the wealthy um, aristocrat that, that Franklin is living with. So uh, he, he's able to do that installation. That was one of the problems back then, is that these big buildings, especially with wood roofs, right. would, would uh, get struck by lightning and turn on fire. So I know Franklin is involved in installing, and maybe that's the way he can make some money, installing, uh, but not that Franklin needed too much money. What else was he famous for? He was a writer, he was an inventor, and he was well-respected in Paris. In fact, that's one of the reasons why the yeah. Americans were smart in appointing him as the ambassador in 1776 to Paris, to France. What are some other examples of what happens with, with Benjamin Franklin? Well, I, I so, do know that he charmed society while he was there. He was uh, very much sought after. He was and, the first best-looking fat guy in well, American, right, in American well, history. And, he and I am the second. He was, he was a frontiersman. He had a coonskin cap, and so he was kind of this... But he wasn't a necessarily handsome person, no, was he? No, but he was very bright, and he was... Charming. He affected that he was, you know, a, 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 a frontiersman, sort of. So, Plus, and he was an inventor and was, all that. Yeah, he was an inventor. The The lightning rod is a good Plus, one. Plus, he could warm the ladies up because he, he invented the stove. Too. He did that, too. He invented That's the right, famous stove. The Franklin stove. stove. The right. Franklin stove. No wonder right. he could warm the ladies up. Meet me, and I make your house warm. How about? And he did warm them up. In fact, he fell in love, and he proposed to a woman, and uh, he, during his years in Paris, had lots of women that he had relationships with, and we don't know the specific details of what the relationships involved, but that uh, he was 70 years old, and he was a uh, sprite, and a, um, he, was in, kept, he kept himself in good shape. But to, to your point about how well-respected he is, let me read you from what John Adams reported when John Adams meets with, with Franklin. John Adams says that Franklin's reputation, quote, was more universal than that of Newton, and I can't pronounce the name, Leibniz, Frederick yep. the Great, or Voltaire, yep. and his character more beloved than any or all of them. 
So there is no doubt Franklin was a celebrity in Paris. This is what Jefferson writes. Uh, Jefferson writes when he takes over for Franklin. So Jefferson comes in 1784. Franklin leaves about a year later. Uh, so they're there for a period of time together. So this is what Jefferson says. This is a quote. The succession to Dr. Franklin at the court of France was an excellent school of humility, Jefferson's writing, because although Jefferson is famous in America for the Declaration of Independence, you know, the French, you know, compared to Franklin, you know, Jefferson is nobody. So Franklin winds up introducing Jefferson to, you know, that group of um, influential French thinkers and, uh, you know, those that uh, were involved with art and with culture. In fact, at the time, as we, as we know, Paris was really the intellectual center of the Western world, many would argue. Mm -hmm. So Voltaire and Rousseau had died, interestingly, both the same year in 1778, and then Turgot in 1781, Diderot, and, and I'm not going to try to pronounce them correctly, 1784. So there was just a, a phenomenal range of thinkers and uh, and, uh, and leaders that had lived in Paris. Yep. And uh, you know, well, let me let me circles, so let me insert a, let me insert a local connection. Uh, Denis Diderot was the editor in chief of the Encyclopedia that was published uh, in the mid-1770s, uh, 60s or so. And uh, Thursday, there's a lunch, I don't know if you can make it, at the University of Miami uh, Alumni Center, Newman Center, there's a lunch meeting by a, a recent uh, biographer of Diderot. So if you're in town, that would be a good, uh, I'm planning to attend. That sounds very interesting. I will check the calendar, but without making any promises. Yeah, but... That, that shows you how this history can connect to today. Yep. So what does Jefferson do? He gets introduced by Franklin to this circle of literati and scientists and clubs, etc., and salons. Maybe we'll have time to talk yep. about what the salons were in Paris, but it was a very open, uh, free-ranging society. And I want to give you some examples of you now what Jefferson is in Paris. So, um, and I want to be careful to the nuns who might be listening, but uh, what does Jefferson do? He travels to Paris with uh, one of his daughters and and with James uh, Hennings. Hennings, who was one of his slaves. And James winds up being trained for three years to become a chef and then later becomes the chef at the hotel where, where Jefferson was staying and he returns back to the United States with Jefferson. But uh, then Jefferson's other daughter comes not too, not too long thereafter. So Jefferson has his two daughters in Paris. What does he decide to do with his daughters? And the answer is he wants to get them educated. So where does he send them? And the quick answer is that there was a, you know, back then you didn't have public schools and aristocratic families could send their girls to get an education. And often it was done in abbeys or in, or in churches, uh, particularly for the very wealthy. And Congress. here the example is that Patsy Jefferson, who was the older of the two daughters, um, you know, was studying in this uh, school, which is run by nuns. And uh, what winds up happening one day, April 18th, 1788, you guys are going to kick out of this, Jefferson receives a brief note from his daughter Patsy, formally requesting her father's permission to join the nuns at the Abbey. Now remember, Jefferson is not Catholic. He's a Protestant. In fact, uh, many would say, and I don't know too much about his particular religious beliefs, but uh, you know, he believed in separation of church and state. So imagine he's now informed that his daughter is telling him that, that she wants to become a nun. So what is his response? What do you think Jefferson does as a good father uh, who you know, isn't Catholic himself, but now his daughter is interested in joining the... No way. The, the, say that again? Over my dead body. Okay, so he is very smart, and this is uh, quite interesting. So I'm going to read you from an article that was written about uh, Jefferson's response. And he doesn't come down at her, and he doesn't uh, get in her face. Instead, what he does is he takes her shopping. 
and he spends more than a thousand francs buying her new clothes and shoes, 48 francs for a ring, oh, and he permits her to attend balls and entertainments, and of course the aim is to make her give up her dream of a religious vocation to entice her with the pleasures of the world, and guess what happens? It doesn't work. No, she said, forget the nunnery. <laughs> it works. So she abandons any thought of changing her religion and becoming a nun. And once the problem, and I'm putting that in quotes, was resolved, Jefferson, had, he drives out to, or I don't know if it was in a, uh, you know, over horseback, or he also liked to walk around to Paris, but he drives out to that school, and after a brief conversation with the abbess, he withdrew Patsy, Patsy and Polly from the Covenant School. So he uses a soft touch to convince his daughter not to become a nun. It, was that really a soft touch? Yeah, an expensive touch, though. That was an expensive touch. I'll, I'll say. So, yeah, so the key to keep your daughter out of the nunnery is just diamonds and, and gold and pumps. I guess so. I have a daughter, so I need to learn these We're things. We're not in favor of any of this. Yes. Uh, Ed, but Ed has a daughter, too. You yeah, know, but she's know, married. She's married. No, she wanted to go to law school, so after college she was a top student, and I said, fine, but you have to work for a year as a paralegal, and she did in New York, and after one year, she didn't want to go to law school, so. It worked. That worked. Yeah, okay. No, no, I didn't care what she did. It was up to her. Oh, come on. Yep. You know. What I'm going to describe to you is almost a dichotomy, the, the Paris of this time period, the 1780s. So it was an intellectual and artistic cultural hub, but it was also a religious city. Uh, but uh, we can talk about uh, what was happening to uh, change some of the, the, the culture and some of the mores of the time. Uh, but let me tell you a little bit about uh, one of the things that Franklin and then also primarily Jefferson loved about Paris. And I'm going to read you to, from a letter that Jefferson writes to an Italian friend. And he says, well, I to proceed to tell you how much I enjoy, he's talking about Paris, their architecture, sculpture, painting, music. I should want words. It is in these arts they shine. The last of them particularly is an enjoyment, the deprivation of which with us cannot be calculated. I am almost ready to say that it is the only thing which from my heart I envy them, in which in spite of it all, the authority of the Decalogue I do covet. So what is Jefferson saying? He's saying he has fallen in love with the architecture, the painting, the music, the culture of Paris. And at the time, there was a famous opera that was playing, and this opera is pushing the boundaries on what's acceptable in, in uh, the culture at the time. And uh, I'm not going to ask you what the... What the what the, what the opera was, but uh, let's see, it was written by Pierre Beaumarchais? Yeah, Beaumarchais, right. Beaumarchais, this is The Marriage of Figaro, which right. is a satire of artistic society, uh, aristocratic society, I should say, and it was a critique of the monarchy, and remember, the French Revolution is going to happen within a few years. Right, well, the, the next year. Was by, the next year? The oh, ne sorry. 1789 it starts. Yep, so we're going to get to the French Revolution. So 1786 is The Marriage of Figaro, which in a way was you could argue, arguably describe it as a sequel to The Barber of Seville, which is also by Beaumarchais. So Jefferson, he loves going to see opera, and here's a Notre Dame connection. So uh, he sends his daughters to take music lessons by the organist from Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. And because they don't have an organ in, in, uh, you know, back in America that he can have at, at his house in Monticello, they wind up learning to play the organ and harpsichord from, as I said, the, the main organist from Notre Dame. So let me describe to you some of the letters that this is where Adams and Jefferson are seeing Notre Dame and, and writing about it to others. And here is a good example. 
And by the way, when John Adams comes back to Paris, he doesn't come alone. He comes with Abigail Adams and he comes with John Quincy Adams. And John Quincy Adams was probably 11 years old and he winds up going to college. When he's 11, he studies for two years and then he goes to college at age 13. And of course, John Quincy Adams becomes the, uh, the sixth president. But uh, some of the diaries that these are guys are writing and some, and by the way, John Quincy was told by his parents, he should memorialize and keep track of, you know, record what you're learning in Paris. So he does. So some of this is going to be coming from diaries and from letters. So let me read you what John Quincy Adam writes. And here's when you can help me, guys, with uh, with some of the religious services. But um, apparently the, the Latin name is Tedium or Tedium. Tedium, Tedium. It's a praise. It's usually a mass or a religious service to give thanks for something. Right. So from what I could tell, it's a Latin hymn. You can use it to describe a fourth century music. Some think may have been written by St. Augustine. But more commonly, it's a religious service, as you said, to give honor and thanks. So what is the TDM service that John Quincy Adams, as an 11-year-old son, along with his mom and dad, so this is Abigail Adams, John Adams, uh, and with Jefferson, what, what is it they get to hear? And the quick answer is they get to see that uh, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette have a child who's born. And the child is eventually going to become Louis XVII, or Louis Charles. Mm -hmm. So on his birth, they have a service, and they get invited to the service. In fact, it's the Marquis de Lafayette, his wife, invites Jefferson and the Adams to attend. And these are, again, from some of the, the letters and from the diaries written by John Quincy Adams as a young kid. So he writes that, I believe I may say with truth that there were millions of people, Mr. Jefferson, who rode from the Marquis with us, Suppose there be it may be as many in the streets as there were in the state of Massachusetts or any other of the states. Every house was full, every window and door, the bottom to the top. So they're describing how many people came out for this important event, which is the birth and the tedium service for a for a brand new child or a brand new king who had been born. Let me give you some other examples of what they're writing about. And while we're looking for that, I'll tell you that remember what the background was that John Adams and uh, you know Abigail Adams they come from Massachusetts where not only are they conservative meaning that they're Protestants but then I think you mentioned earlier the differences between what they might consider Papist liturgy and you know the art and the um, you know the sculpture versus a very simple Protestant church which you would expect to see in in New England so there were big differences between you know what what they were accustomed to so here they are you know in the middle of the, the most elegant church in, in all of Europe arguably so what are they describing and the quick answer is it was, it was I won't call it a shock for them but uh, you know it was a big change from what they were used to seeing and let me read you a little bit from what they're writing about but uh, long story short they're describing it as magnificent they're describing it and this is jefferson uh, and he says it bids defiance to description that was his expression that uh, you lost m much by not attending the tedium this is a letter that jefferson writes to william short william short was his personal secretary this is dated april 2nd of 1785 jefferson writes that you lost much by not attending the tedium at notre dame yesterday it bids defiance to description i will only observe to you in general that there are more judges ecclesiastics and Let's see, and grand signatures present that General Washington had of simple soldiers in his army when he took the Hessians at Trenton, beat the British at Princeton, and hemmed up the British army at Brunswick a whole winter. So Jefferson is impressed with just the number of people marching in and out of Notre Dame for this service. And um, 
This is also interesting. This is on that same day. This is April 1st, so a day earlier. John Quincy is writing about you know, his experience seeing in a charming sight an absolute king. So it's the birth of his son and Maria Antoinette there also. An absolute king of one of the most powerful empires on earth. And perhaps a thousand of his first personages in that empire adoring the divinity who created them and acknowledging that he can in a moment reduce them to dust. So maybe that comes from the liturgy. And it goes on to say that... Um, and this is the young Quincy Adams. And this is, again, all a quote. I don't know whether all of this was acceptable to God. He's talking about the pageantry and, and uh, the, uh, the display. So he goes on to say, I'm not sure if this was acceptable to God Almighty, but very few persons came here for him. So he's pointing out a lot of the people who came to the service weren't there because they're trying to avail themselves of a religious service. They're there to be seen and, and to, to, to see and be seen. Uh, but uh, again, Quincy Adams continues to write us, however, very pleased with the ceremony and should have been so that it gave me an opportunity to see so numerous an assembly of the first rank in the kingdom. The king and all the court were dressed in clothes very rich, but in no peculiar form. So you've got these letters talking about uh, what they witnessed, these uh, Protestant Americans at the, at the great cathedral of Notre Dame. And uh, what else can I tell you about uh, Jefferson in Paris? So he's very impressed with the culture. And in fact, uh, we'll be showing pictures of their various statues now for American tourists and others to see in Paris. And uh, one thing he was impressed with, among others, there was a lot of construction that was taking place. And uh, you know, he, he knows he wants to expand Notre Dame. He wants to expand, I'm sorry, Monticello. And uh, there is a statue, a 10-foot bronze statue today, which is fairly recent, of Jefferson looking at. Today it's used as a memorial for the foreign legions, if I'm not mistaken, the French legions in Paris. So it's the building that they were building with, a, with an arch to it and a dome. And that's where he got the idea for the dome for Monticello, which is in the, in the middle of the building. So you've got Jefferson enjoying the scenery, and, and Jefferson also has uh, relationships while he's in Paris. And let's talk a little bit about some other relationships. So uh, Franklin, and this is interesting, when you search for Notre Dame and you look at some of the records, Franklin called one of his, and I'm putting in quotes, love, lovers, he called her Notre Dame. So when you read some of his letters, you're not sure if he's talking about Notre Dame, the church, or if he's talking about uh, her name, and I'm probably going to butcher it. But uh, So this is a, a widow who he falls in love with. Again, he's in his 70s, and he calls her my Notre Dame, and if you could help me with my uh, my French, but it probably means my woman, or our woman, right? That's what, uh, yep. Our Lady, Notre Dame? Yep, yep, yep. That, yeah, so, that Franklin uh, was a scoundrel. So Franklin uses that as a term of endearment <laughs> to refer to, and I'll, I'll figure out what her name was. Yep. But uh, this is a woman that he, uh, you know, has, he has multiple relationships while he's in Paris. And uh, another observation is he gets to witness the first balloon display, so the hot air balloon. Okay. And he writes about it because he's a scientist. So it went through a couple different balloon displays. They do the first one with no one in it. Then they send out a balloon with, this isn't Franklin participating, he's just watching along with big crowds, watching the balloon. So again, Paris was a center of, of industry and commerce and art. So the, the second balloon display, they put some sheep in the balloon to test it out. And that reminds me of when we were sending you know, a rocket into space. Yep. We were putting Curious George and other animals inside the inside the rocket. They were doing the same thing with the uh, with the hot air balloons. And then finally, they uh, we've got the date on the website if you want to read more of the details and read Franklin's papers. But the, the for, he calls it, this is Franklin, the first aerial voyage by man on November 21st. So he witnesses that while he's in Paris. But then Franklin leaves, and as we said, Jefferson comes in. And let me give you some more background about Jefferson. So 
Jefferson, and we'll talk a little bit about the French Revolution. Jefferson is there really between revolutions. So he comes after the American Revolution. So Franklin was there during the American Revolution in Adams. And then Jefferson's there from 1784 to 1789, and that's as the French Revolution is beginning to, uh, to, to strike and to, to get underway, to break out. And let's give some details about the French Revolution. So, and this is another important event that happens at Notre Dame. So the French Revolution, uh, May 5th, and let's give some background. The French Revolution uh, begins because Louis XVI is having financial troubles, and there's some irony here that uh, the reasons for the French Revolution, were in part, were that France had supported the American Revolution and incurred all kinds of debt, and, and Louis was, uh, you could criticize him for being a little bit uh, too low to react, and he was very indecisive. So the, 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 the French it's called the old regime, had three estates. So the first estate was the clergy, the second estate is the aristocracy, and the third estate is everybody else, including merchants and lawyers and, and wealthy non-aristocrats. So France is having financial troubles, 1787, 1788, and eventually Louis is forced to call the meeting and to convene the Estates General in May, May 5th of 1789. And Jefferson and and Gouverneur Morris actually get to sit in, and there are some famous pictures we're going to be putting on statutes and stories of that very important assembly, that meeting of the Estates General. And that body, what's called an antiquated body, had not met since 1614. And arguably that was one of the problems, that the French are trying to use an institution which would only meet infrequently and hadn't been updated. And Louis makes the mistake by convening the Estates General that opens the Pandora's box, and we'll get into some of the history. So the second estate forces him. He wants to raise taxes, and they're going to. The second estate, which is the aristocrats, say that we're not going to allow you to do it unless it's part of this agreement from all the three estates. And that, as I said, opens the Pandora's box. But you've got letters of Jefferson and Morris who are sitting there in that it's Versailles, and these are beautiful pictures of you know the who's who of Paris with Louis and with Marie Antoinette meeting. And I'm going to quote you from some of the letters from let's do let's do Gouverneur Morris who was there on business. So Jefferson, by the way, this is on May 5th. He describes the King's speech as quote exactly what it should have been and very well delivered. But that's not how, how Morris sees it. Morris, and remember who Morris is. Gruber Morris is uh, one of the five who is very active with uh, finalizing the Constitution. He gets credit for writing the preamble and simplifying the preamble. So he's referred to as the pen of the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution. So he's sitting there with Jefferson at the meeting of the Estates General, 1789, with the opening of what's going to become the French Revolution. And look at how prescient he is. He reflects, however, that... The, the, this is what he says. He says, here drops the curtain on the first great act of this drama. So he realized that we're just getting started, and he recognizes that Louis, or Louis the, the 16th, was insensible of the pang of greatness going off. So in other words, the group of 3,000 members of the Estates General are not paying respect to Louis, and he's recognizing that uh, Louis's got a problem. So in a letter that Gruvener Morris writes to John Jay on July 1st of 1789, uh, he, this is right after the tennis court oath, Morris observes that the soldiers charged with guarding Paris were drinking in the streets and declaring, quote, that they will not act against the people. So Gruvener Morris is realizing that and detecting that the winds are shifting against Louis. And this is another quote, that the sword has slipped out of the monarch's hand without him perceiving a little of the matter. So Gruvener Morris realizes that uh, this can... Uh, this can turn very quickly, and he realizes that uh, things are only going to get worse. 
Here's a letter that he writes to George Washington in July of 1789, and he concludes in the letter that France is at present as near to anarchy as society can approach without dissolution. He observes that while a more able man would not have fallen into this situation, he's talking about King Louis XVI, no ability could now extricate Louis. And then for Morris, Louis had no choice but to, quote, float along with the current of events. And, uh, you know, things get uh, get very bloody. The Bastille is stormed on July 14th, a very famous day in French history, July 14th. So what about Jefferson? So Jefferson is very close, as were a lot of the founding fathers, with, with Lafayette. And Lafayette um, tries to sort of chart a middle course, and it becomes dangerous for Lafayette. But initially, uh, Lafayette writes a very famous French document called the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizens. And the Declaration of Rights of Man was in some respects modeled after the Magna Carta, but also the American Declaration of Independence. So Jefferson has a role that he plays with Lafayette, giving him guidance on on drafting the, the Declaration of Rights of Man. Uh, but things uh, gradually, you know, not, not gradually, but you know, the French Revolution spirals out of control. And uh, at, at, at some point, Louis, not Louis, but uh, what we're talking about, um, Lafayette. Lafayette gets appointed in charge of the King's Guard, and you know, you've got radicals on one side, and you have the moderates on the other side, and the, the aristocracy on, on one side. So it is difficult for Lafayette to sort of navigate the, the currents and the controversies. And just to give you an example of how Louis uh, puts Lafayette in a difficult position, Louis tries to escape out of Paris, and he gets caught because uh, you know, he's trying to dress down and not look like a king so he can get out of town. But the, the guards, the National Guards, capture him. And uh, you know, Lafayette comes from some of the most wealthy uh, you know, French aristocracy, that background, but yet he has to really constrain and uh, restrict and, uh, and imprison, in, in a way, uh, the king. So uh, eventually Louis the of course, we know Louis the Sixteenth and, and Marie Antoinette get uh, get the guillotine. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you something that uh, Thomas Paine comes pretty close to having that happen. As does Lafayette. Lafayette gets imprisoned for for quite some time. And uh, the question is, well, could Washington have done more to get Lafayette out of out of uh, out of jail? But uh, these were tough times. But my point is that the Jefferson is there to see the beginning of the French Revolution, and and, and Jefferson doesn't realize. And, and you know, part of this was Jefferson expects that the French Revolution can be modeled after the American Revolution, which is to put restrictions in the constitutional monarchy. But uh, it's not easy to do. And when you uncork the bottle, and that's why I think American history, the American Constitutional Convention, uh, and this is going back now to Joseph Ellis, the historian I like to quote, he refers to 1787, American, America's Constitutional Convention, as a second revolution. So our first revolution was a revolution from Britain, but our second revolution was a, some have described it as a conservative revolution. So we weren't, um, you know, it was a revolution to restore order, which is what the Constitution tried to do, to strengthen the government and to make sure that, that things didn't uh, you know, deteriorate, whereas the French Revolution gets out of hand. And uh, let me go through now some of the other Americans who are in France. Uh, so we're talking about the French Revolution, that's 1789. But uh, let me give you some other Americans, and feel free to, to shout out other questions that you might have about the Americans who are in Paris. So we talked about 1778. You had Franklin, Lee, Silius Dean, and Adams. 
We talked about how in 1783 you had Franklin, Adams, John Jay, Henry Lawrence, but Franklin also brought with him as his secretary his grandson. His grandson is William Temple Franklin. So it was not uncommon that people would bring their families with them if they knew they were going to be in a diplomatic mission for some time. Jefferson, as I mentioned earlier, brings with him his two daughters, so that's Polly and Patsy. He also brings Sally Hemings, and he brings Sally Hemings' brother, who is James, who winds up becoming a cook and learns French cuisine. Who else goes through Paris? We have not just John Adams, but John Quincy Adams and Abigail Adams. And uh, let's skip ahead. So the French Revolution takes off in the 1789 time frame. And there, yeah, 1790s, who else becomes the American minister? And uh, we can talk a little bit about the XYZ affair. And we've talked about in prior nights how the American Revolution, um, you know, worked out well for America, but the French Revolution uh, creates all kinds of controversies. And Washington has to decide, does he want to side with the French? Does he want to side with the British? And we remember that the British, um, and there are good reasons uh, not to pick a winner, but uh, Washington and Hamilton decide to stay neutral. And uh, I'm wondering, Guy, can you hear me? Yes, we can, of course. Okay. All right, so I don't want to just drone on. But uh, the XYZ affair, what's the XYZ affair? So what winds up happening, France has all kinds of monetary problems and uh, the, the reign of terror, but uh, we send three, we send Marshall. This is John Marshall, who was the fourth chief justice of the Supreme Court. We send him as an envoy to Paris in 1797. We send El Eldred Sherry, uh, and Eldred Sherry is signer of the Declaration. He was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, so he's sent to Paris, as is, and there was one more, um, let's no, I'm not sure, but uh, there were three American delegates who were sent to the Constitution. Elder Gary was later the uh, governor of Massachusetts, and he's responsible for gerrymandering. Exactly. So this group of three, including, and these are important founders, Marshall, you can't get bigger when it comes to American law than Marshall. Jerry, as you said, an important uh, signer of the Constitution, a governor, influential person in Massachusetts. And by the way, he was bipartisan. He um, didn't slide with Jefferson. He, uh, you know, he, he uh, covered a lot of bases. Uh, and the other is Pinckney, so uh, Charles Pinckney. So these three go to Paris to try to work out. There were some tensions over shipping, and the and the, um, the the French were seizing American ships. And Talleyrand, who was the French minister, wants a bribe from these three American diplomats, and they don't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, so that creates the XYZ affair, and you have the undeclared war. This is the quasi war that happens in the 17, the late 1790s, and uh, then you have another delegation come in in 1800 time frame. So a couple of years later, Adams doesn't want to go to war with France, and I think to his credit, he decides to give peace another chance. So he sends, these are some other names that we may not recognize, but he sends William Richardson Davy. Davy is a signer of the Constitution from North Carolina. He then later founds the University of North Carolina. He's a governor of, of uh, North Carolina. He sends Williams Van Murray, who's another famous American diplomat, and Zephaniah Swift, and some of you may remember from the book display that we had at NOVA from the Hamilton exhibit that Zephaniah Swift uh, becomes the author and the editor of some very famous American books. He's a jurist from Connecticut, a statesman. So he's the secretary of that delegation. And Oliver Ellsworth, who was the third chief justice of the United States. So they go to Paris in 1800, and they negotiate what's called the Convention of 1800 or the Treaty of Morfontaine. 
So why am I saying this? It's just to point out that you have very famous American founders going through Paris. So I have not yet been able to establish that they toured Notre Dame, but uh, they were in Paris, and presumably if you're in Paris, you're going to go see Notre Dame. Yep. And even if they didn't go in Notre Dame, because it was probably the biggest structure in Paris, uh, you know, they would have definitely seen it, uh, depending upon where they were, if they were in the heart of Paris. So those are three more American diplomats who get to see Paris, and that's in 1800. And that treaty is the Treaty of Morfontaine that leads to peace with Napoleon. And there's a famous signing ceremony where Napoleon and his brother are thanking them for now we're going to have peace with America. And uh, that then is able to lead to the, the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 because Adams made peace with France and ended that undeclared war that's able to uh, lead the, you know, plow the ground for the, the most important real estate deal in American history. So who are some other famous Americans who travel through Paris? And the quick answer is it was easy for me to find whoever the American minister to France was. So here are some names. Albert Gallatin, he was the minister yep. of France, 1815 to 1823. Thomas Pinckney on his travels to Spain to do the Treaty of San Lorenzo. He stops through Paris. Uh, Charles Pinckney, I mentioned, is the brother of, of um of the other Pickney, which is Thomas Pickney. So they were you know, important. I think it was South Carolina, if I'm not mistaken, an influential South Carolina family. Monroe, he was the minister to France, 1794 to 1796. So he was there for two years, and Jefferson sends him in 1803 to negotiate the Louisiana Purchase because Monroe had been in Paris for two years earlier, prior to the, uh, you know, when we had peace with France. So it's a who's who of, of famous Americans who were who were assigned diplomatically or otherwise uh, through Paris. So let me give you some more examples of some of the stories of, of what we come across. And you know, we talked about the Catholic Americans who were studying there. Let me give you more details about um, what Jefferson and Franklin do. And this is quite interesting. And we're skipping around everywhere, but um, there is a an event of espionage that potentially implicated the the. the uh, the church. This is Notre Dame we're talking about. And Franklin, this is during the Revolutionary War, gets a note that slipped to him in his apartment where he's staying. And the note says that if you meet me in Notre Dame, we want to have a, we call today a back channel. So this is a secretive message that says to him, meet me in Notre Dame. I forgot it was at the West Wing under a certain statue. I'll be wearing a, a red flower in my hat because this was a feeler from the British to find out what the Americans might be interested in in terms of an early uh, way of of, um, you know, trying to come up to a peace agreement or a, a feeler to resolve the American Revolution. So it's not a fair question, but what do you think Franklin does? And remember, Franklin is, uh, you know, when it comes to his politics, um, you know, he's a moderate and uh, he likes to avoid controversy. So when he's invited, and it might surprise you, when he's invited to, uh, you know, participate, and, you know, the question is, do you think that people aren't going to recognize Franklin if he tries to walk into Notre Dame uh, to have this secretive meeting with someone who he doesn't? even know who it's going to be. So what do you think his answer is when he's invited to engage in this in this uh, diplomatic, uh, quasi, whatever you might want to call it, this, uh, the, this secretive uh, spy activity on the, on the floor of Notre Dame? What do you think his answer is? He turns him down because he doesn't want to be accused of collusion with Great Britain. Exactly right. So he discusses it with John Adams and the other team of delegates, and they decide to... Uh, to write a response, but they never send the response. And the response basically says, are you crazy? People would recognize me, number one. Number two, I have no idea who you are. Number three, um, you know, if, if there's a proposal that's going to come from Britain, make the proposal. Don't try to meet me behind the scenes and expose me and our delegation to getting into trouble. Uh, so he's risk-averse, in other words. They never send the letter back, but they tell their 
the French police or the French ministry that uh, someone's going to be waiting at whatever the date was at 12 o'clock with a, a description of what they're going to look like. And uh, it turns out it was probably a, a, a British officer um, who was, uh, you know, trying to, it's unclear if he was working on authority from King George III, but they didn't want to risk their relationship with the French, who are their biggest supporters now after that Treaty of Amity and Commerce. In fact, I want to double check that this conversation with the French happened before or after they signed the treaty. So they didn't want to jeopardize their delicate relationship with France. So that's just another example of how a lot of things connect to, to Notre Dame with some of its history. So let's skip ahead now and I'm looking to see what, how we are on time. Because we've got lots of material out. So we're almost at, uh, we're almost at 8 o'clock. Let me give you one more. And let me also mention that if people go to statutesofstories.com, you'll get to read the, the link and the story from this past weekend, but there'll be more that'll be coming next week. So here's an example of Monroe. So Monroe is the minister to France, and he comes back to negotiate the, the Louisiana Purchase. And when he is there in 1804, a certain individual gets crowned the emperor of France. And we may have mentioned it earlier, but you want to take a, a quick guess at who becomes the emperor of France in 1804? It's got Napoleon. Napoleon. So... Napoleon, uh, in, I'm not sure if he was invited by Napoleon, but uh, you have um, James Monroe, who becomes, I think, our fifth president, gets to witness the crowning of Napoleon. So here's another question for you. Who crowns Napoleon Emperor of France? And it's a trick question. Napoleon does. Napoleon does it. So he has the Pope there. The Pope hands him the crown. And he puts it on Napoleon. his head. He himself, not yeah. the Pope. Yeah. He crowns himself. And Napoleon gets to rule France as an emperor for basically until 1815. He gets arrested, and we can talk about Waterloo. But uh, Napoleon uh, is calling the shots for a while. So uh, Monroe is there to witness that. So it, it's quite interesting to see important events happen. Uh, some of them are religious events. Others are symbolic events. And maybe that's a good way to end, that Notre Dame, and again, you can go to statutesofstories.com. You can go to David Wells, the David Wells Ross website if you want to see some beautiful art that he did about Notre Dame. But it wasn't just a church. It was also a symbol of Paris uh, where events would occur. And this is another interesting observation. Often the kings, if they're having a, a religious service of their own, if they're, if they're serious about praying, you know, they're going to do that closer to Versailles. But public rituals and public events would happen at, at Notre Dame. And we talked about earlier how some of these uh, TDM, how do we pronounce it, guys? The TDM? Te Deum, to God. Te Deum in Latin. Te Deum, to God we praise you. Adoramos. Have you noticed how, you notice how many times he says that? So you know for sure that he has the it's, accent in Arabic? Just speak, say it in Spanish. He, yeah. wants, he wants to be a worldly guy so bad oh, that yeah. we're going to make him Eduardo Verdal. Yep. Yeah. The French. Eduardo's not Cuban, he's French. I'm going to congratulate you. You do it much better than I when it comes to pronouncing <laughs> Latin. The, the last little bit of uh, trivia I'll give for you, and we'll save more for next week. But um, when Jefferson winds up leaving Paris, and he's there for five years, take a wild guess, and of course you're not going to know the exact number, but uh, he returns with him. Five wives. No. Rape. Bottles of wine. Oh. Bottles of wine, okay. Yes. Wine. I'm, think, I'm thinking wives, not no, wine. No, forget it, no. And art. So here I will ask you this question. So he's bringing back Paris with him 
to to Virginia. So I think it's in the, in the neighborhood of 40 or so chairs he brings back, but uh, he also becomes an art connoisseur, and he brings back all kinds of art. But there's certain kinds of art he does not want to bring back, so that's the question I'll ask you. So of the art that he does not bring back, uh, that he is not interested in collecting, and this gets to, here's a hint, you know, he's a he's a Democrat, you know, he's a, a man of the people. So what kind of art does he not want to collect and not bring back to America? Oh, my God. Royal art? Perfect. Exactly. Royal art. So he does not bring back any any art of, you know, King Louis the Fourteenth right. or, you know, uh, you know, other famous royalty. He, he brings back, you know, more democratic kind of art. Uh, but 86, and he complains. Bourgeois. About, uh, Bourgeois art. Great quotes about he's not happy about the, the cost of shipping these 86 crates when he returns back to Virginia. 86 but crates. That, oh, my God. That will conclude tonight's statutes and stories discussion of Notre Dame. And, gentlemen, it's always a pleasure. To be continued. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Adam, and uh, we'll we'll be talking. Thank you very much. Stay free, my friend. This is the end of Statutes and Stories on WSQFRadio.com. I hope you enjoyed these last three hours. Uh, We work it, and we do it as best we can because Ed said so. So stay free, my friends. Now stay tuned for the Chris Ann Show, physical proof that media lies. What? How apropos. Attention, Patriots. 